Let's go through every single package installed with a Linux install image. I'm going through the software included with Slackware, but these are all open source applications and libraries, so whether you're running Slackware like me, or Fedora, Debian, BSD, or even Mac or Windows, you can probably download, install, and try these on your computer. So chances are, you'll be able to learn something from this podcast. Let's get started. First on the list is SBC, that's Subband Codec for Bluetooth Audio Output. It's a low-complexity audio codec used in the Advanced Audio Distribution Profile, that's A2DP, which is a Bluetooth standard. It can be used elsewhere, but that's what it's included here for. Uh, it uses four or eight subbands, an adaptive bit allocation algorithm, and adaptive block PCM quantizers. I don't know what half of that means. I vaguely know what most of it means. I don't really know. Couldn't explain it. And um, so I guess I don't know. And um, it, it's for Bluetooth audio output. So it's it is not intended to. It's it's intended to be fast to 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 get through. Um, because Bluetooth is a miserable specification. It really is. I I can't stand Bluetooth. I never ever want Bluetooth in any scenario, except I guess I do, because I use it uh, to listen to podcasts lately. I've got, like, these headphones that are Bluetooth, because every time I was plugging in wired headphones, they, they kept breaking uh, the, the connection, like, the the, the, the 35 millimeter or 3.5 millimeter uh, um, plug, which is, what, an eighth inch now, right? Yeah, eighth inch plug. Uh, it's weird that I've switched over to calling those in metric. That's weird. Um, so the eighth inch, um, audio plug, it just keeps breaking, or sometimes in the worst case scenario, it, it, it actually damages the port I'm plugging it into. And that's mainly because I have the, the device in a pocket while I'm, you know, I'm walking around listening to this thing. So anyway, Bluetooth does at least help me get around breaking cable connections. And like I say, the worst case, the, the output thing, but, um, the, the port, but really I do not love Bluetooth. I find it very, um, I just find the whole process unfriendly, unreliable. There are still devices that, that say that they have Bluetooth, and for whatever reason, I just can't get a Bluetooth thing to connect to them. It's just, it's just a miserable specification. I really don't like it, and I wish we had something better, like anything, anything better than Bluetooth. Um, audio over Wi-Fi, I don't know, like hyper-local Wi-Fi, which, I mean, really is what Bluetooth should be. Like, in theory, I like Bluetooth. I think it's, it's in theory, a really cool specification. It's like that personal network, like in Shadowrun or something, but it's just, it doesn't work. It's not reliable. It's slow. You would not want to, uh, count on it for anything, really, so I don't. But that's what that is. SBC is the codec required for Bluetooth, uh, audio output. And and the key again to Bluetooth is to keep things small and 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 fast. I mean, it's because it needs to. Maybe Bluetooth is very very slow, so you, the data you're sending through it needs to be really basic, and that's what SBC aims to do. Uh, why SBC and not um, I don't know uh, what was it Keltec? No, uh, Keltex? No, that was the screenwriting speaks. Let's just say speaks. Why that? I don't know. Probably a different process. Um. SDL is next. Simple Direct Media, Simple Direct Media, so Direct Media is all one string. Simple Direct Media Layer, SDL, Library. This, I think we've talked about like the SDL graphics, the SDL this, the SDL that. This is the Simple Direct Media Layer, a generic API that provides low-level access to your audio, to keyboard, mouse, joystick, 3D hardware, through OpenGL, now Vulkan, and 2D frame buffer across multiple platforms. Um, SDL is just kind of, it's a big deal. It, it, it's, it is such an important multimedia library for just j- just for those experiments that you're doing with like you know if you're programming a game or something and you you just want to monitor for keyboard events SDL is there and can just talk to your keyboard it is so simple and so 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 pleasant to use it is a really amazing library um it is it is it it's it is a you know, a framework, um, a set of libraries that that's there for you so that you don't have to figure out where those signals are coming from. You don't need to care about how the, how, 
what to monitor for based on an operating system. All you do is call SDL and it has already done all of that because it's been compiled for that operating system. So it's got all the information you need. It, it'll, it's, it's got the signals you're listening for. It can send the signals you want to send. It's, it's, it's an important, important library. It's probably one of the, possibly the single most sort of impactful library for um, those early days of porting games to Linux. If you uh, listen to talks by Iculus, uh, what's his real name, Ryan Gordon, I think, uh, then you'll you'll know that he uses or used at least. I don't know what he uses now, but I mean, for the longest time, it was all SDL based. That was the way that you get the game to run on Linux. It's not a magic process. You don't just like swap out. Uh, Direct X or whatever Windows uses, I think it's Direct X uh, with SDL, and suddenly things work. But but the, you know that's the kind of thing that you would need to look to if someone has hired you to take this game, make it run on Linux. You're you're looking at SDL. I mean, unless you look elsewhere, which you can do, but SDL is just kind of like it's the low level. Like here's the access that you need. It it'll you can do all of the things. You know, you can draw graphics. You can monitor and send keyboard or, or uh, gamepad events and so on, and sounds and all that other good stuff. So SDL, very important. Uh, SERF, S-E-R-F, it's a high-performance asynchronous HTTP client library. Um, this is a C-based library uh, built upon the Apache Portable Runtime library, so it can help you if you're writing a C application. Uh, it'll help you ingest and process data over HTTP. Um, so if you were, uh, I keep thinking, oh, you'd be writing a web browser, but you wouldn't be really. But let, let's say you wanted to, you know, you want to interface with something that communicates over HTTP. Apache Surf is is a way to get that into your C C code uh, without writing it yourself. So it'll it'll handle obviously the HTTP data itself, but it also knows about SSL, TLS. It knows about Kerberos. It knows about, um, actually, I don't know that it knows about DAV, web DAV, and that sort of thing. It may not do that natively. Let's look really quick. If I do an most on var log packages slash surf, can we determine? No, it's, there's not a whole lot here to, to, to give me a hint about what it, what it handles. I was, I was hoping for like, um, a well, there is a header file, obviously. I guess I could look at that really quick. I was looking for, like, sort of a bunch of obviously named header files. Um, yeah, I don't think it has anything for WebDAV. I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it doesn't have anything on WebDAV. Um, so that's that's Surf. You can talk to the internet um, in your in your code, thanks to Surf. And, and that would be important, too, for, for things like, uh, you know, get hot new stuff from, from KDE or whatever they're calling it these days, where you've, you've written something into your application to interface with the internet. Like in Inkscape, actually. Inkscape, if you've ever used it, um, or whether or not you've ever used it, you may or may not know about this, um, you can sometimes import a, a graphic from the internet by just giving it, uh, you know, you, you, you go to file, import graphic from internet or something like that, um, and and you can navigate sort of around and, and find like an SVG on, on one of the usual SVG provider sites and just import that straight into to Inkscape, which saves you a couple of clicks. Otherwise, you'd have to go to the website, you'd have to find the thing, you'd have to download it and save it onto your hard drive and then go back over to Inkscape and then import or open that in, you know, so it, it's just, it's, I guess, almost less about clicks and more about just staying in the application you're in. And and I don't know that that used Surf by any means, uh, but that's the kind of interaction you might use Surf for, where you're, you're sort of, the user doesn't think of themselves as being online during this transaction, but you're actually talking 
to the network. SG3utils, that's Utilities and Test Programs for the Linux SG Driver. So, so the SG Driver is the thing that handles SCSI commands to, to various devices. SCSI, S-C-S-I, it's an old-fashioned interface that, that was sort of concurrent in, in time with serial ports and parallel ports. Well, SCSI was the other one, and it was quite a lot faster, um, and people got really excited about it because it was fast um, for, for the time. It, it does actually get used in more than you might imagine uh, because, yeah, sure, SCSI, yeah, you know, that would have started, been really popular for hard drives because that's where that, that's where you really need that bandwidth. But so, so SCSI, the SCSI like commands and, and the, the protocol is, you know, used in part for like common devices like USB drives, um, uh, a tappy devices. That's like a CD drive or a DVD drive or a tape drive if you happen to have one of those. Uh, but even like Fiber Channel, uh, IEEE 1394, which I guess apparently uses something called an SVP protocol. Don't know what that means. But uh, SAS, iSCSI, kind of obviously. FCOE, don't know what that is. I'm just reading this off of the uh, Slackware package description. But the SG driver itself was developed for Linux, for the Linux kernel back in 2.4 days. It's been, you know, upgraded and kept kept along for the ride um and it it works as well for other other linux uh, other unix like systems uh, or linux like um that'll make some people angry freebsd solaris true 64 uh, and it works on windows apparently I don't know why you would use that, but I, maybe maybe there are no SCSI drivers on Windows. I don't know. Uh, so SG3 Utils has like over 50 utilities in it. We can look at, well, I'm not going to look at all of them because I don't even know what I would do with these things. Um, what, what, are we, what are we looking at? Uh, SG3 Utils. Okay. So yeah, there's a bunch of things in the package here. There's Rescan SCSI Bus. There's SCSI Logging Level. SCSI Mandat. Uh, SCSI read cap, SCSI ready, SCSI start, SCSI stop, SCSI temperature, and so on. So, I mean, th yeah, there's a bunch of utilities there that, um, that you might, I guess, have an opportunity to use someday. Um, if you were sort of debugging or, or looking into SCSI devices. So, for instance, there is, uh, the SCSI underscore temperature command. Type in SCSI underscore temperature, and then a path to a device slash dev. Let's do SDC. And it returns, uh, in this case, an error because uh, there's an illegal request invalid opcode. So I guess because this is an ATA maybe and not something else. I, I'm not sure why that would not work. Bad example, I guess. Um, oh, what about a USB drive? Because it did say uh, no. Doesn't Nothing seems to be working here. Of course, it could also be... Here we go. No, no, it doesn't work. It could be that I need to do it with sudo. Uh, no. That just doesn't work. All right, that's not a problem. I'm either using it incorrectly or it's just not using the thing that I think it's, you know, that it doesn't have access to it because it's not using all of the things that it needs to be using. Uh, let's see, SG Sync. Don't want to do that. SG Verify. Let's do an SG, or SG Info is even better. Uh, SG Info, uh, ooh, Options, Device. Okay, well, let's do that. SG Info on SDC. Uh, it says device type is zero, vendor ATA, product is whatever, revision level CC26. Yeah, so there was some info about a drive, right? I mean, that's somewhat useful, I guess. Yeah, so it's it's reporting on the devices that exist, uh, but what it's telling me and whether I care is beyond me. So obviously, I don't know what I'm doing here with the SG uh, commands. There are, as it says, over 50 utilities. So if you're if you're looking into debugging SCSI or writing something that you know for some reason uh, needs to send a, a specific SCSI command to some device, then then that would be the thing to use the SG driver or the SG3 underscore utils specifically. Next up is an, an, an interesting Nepomuk project. And Nepomuk for me uh, sort of brings back memories of the opening ceremonies for KDE4 that was uh, held at the Google um, the Google headquarters in in wherever in California. And I, I was able to attend that and it was 
was it was really fascinating. Met lots of people there and was just in amongst the, well, obviously the KDE community. It was very exciting at the time. Uh, and I look back at it just sort of starry-eyed that I was even there. I mean, I, I forget. I think I got in because, I mean, it, there was kind of an open invitation. But I, I had emailed and said, hey, I'm a podcaster. I'd love to go and do interviews, and I did, I, I think. Did I do interviews? Or maybe not. Um, but I, I definitely reported on the event, as it were. And uh, and it's in the archive somewhere. There's there's some chatter about it in, in an old show. But um, th- there was talk then about Nepomuk and this, this concept of a, well, certainly a semantic desktop is what, well, it was specifically a social semantic desktop. This was, um, if you go to semanticdesktop.org, you can read more about it, or nepomuk.semanticdesktop.org specifically to get more information about Nepomuk. Um, and and the I see, and this is this is where I kind of I struggle because I feel like they have a lot of very exciting ideas, and none of them describe anything specific. It's very very difficult to. For, at least for me, from reading the information on their website, um, I can't quite divine what exactly they're sub- they're they're describing. I mean, I can broadly, and, and that is that like their their idea is for people in a group, users, users in a group, to you know, users in a group have knowledge, right? You 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 develop knowledge about what you're doing just by doing it, and the problem is that. That a user over here on the left side of the office discovers something cool and is doing it and is speeding up their workflow. And a a user over here on the right side of the office hasn't found that trick yet and is doing everything the old way. How do you get those two people to, to, to... How do you get the left person to understand the right person's need and then how do you get the knowledge from the left to the right and and that's you know and that multiplies the more people you have using an application and so nepomuk is attempting to the, the semantic desktop concept is that somehow you would have users with knowledge and they'd be able to share all of that knowledge with one another through structured means that the computer could also understand the most uh the the most succinct description of what they're after it, uh, appears on one of their flyers and it says nepomuk's solution is called well here i guess i should read the problem statement first right nepomuk um uh, the personal desktop to, to develop a comprehensive solution for extending the personal desktop into a collaboration environment which supports both personal information management and the sharing across sh- social or organizational relationships. So their solution is called the Social Semantic Desktop. The new desktop is one semantic. It makes knowledge acce- uh, uh, processable. Sorry. So one semantics. It makes knowledge processable by a computer. Two, social. It supports the interconnection and exchange with other desktops and their users. That's what they want. But again, I'm having a hard time finding anywhere on their website what that means. Like what, like, you know what I mean? Like I hear what it means, but like, what does that, what do I click on? Where, where do I experience this? And the closest thing I can find from their website is a lot of talk about wikis. Like, they're really into wikis. Really excited about wikis. I mean, I am too. Wikis are great. But, I mean, they're not the... the that's not the social semantic desktop, right? I mean, that's that's a wiki. So, anyway, if you look in the package... I mean, you always just got to look at the package, right? Look at the package, and there's a bunch of uh, .ontology and .trig files. The .trig files are sort of, I, I think, sort of basically data types... Um, and with, with lots of comments, so you can kind of gather what they are, like defines the default static namespace abbreviation for a graph, defines a name for a free desktop icon as defined by the free desktop icon naming uh, convention, I guess, it's off the screen, uh, and I don't want to scroll over. Uh, a marker property to mark selected properties, which are input to a mathematical equation. Defines a relationship between two resources where the subject is a topic of the object. Defines a relationship between a resource and one or more sub-resources. Description of sub-resources are only inter- uh, interpretable when the super-resource exists. Deleting a super-resource should then also delete all sub-resources. A transferring... Yeah, okay. 
So it goes on and on like that. And there's a bunch of those files. Where those are getting used, I, I don't exactly know. But I, I imagine they're being used by the Plasma desktop to classify specific kinds of resources. And I guess that's good. Um, does Is it showing up right now? Is like this something that I'm using and I don't realize? Like, is is... Is that what's happening? I, I really don't know. It's it's really difficult to wrap my mind around what exactly is going on. Now, I do know that if I right-click on something in the Plasma desktop, I do have a share menu, which I love. I use that a lot to send stuff to my device over KDE Connect. But you can also send it via Bluetooth. You can send it via email to Imgur, various places. You can assign tags. You can, uh, I guess, look at tags at some point. Again, I don't really know how that works. And I mean, that's... That's the metadata problem that I keep talking about. It's very difficult to manage metadata. It's very difficult to actually get any return on your investment in metadata. It's very unclear how metadata affects your environment. I, I feel like this 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 idea, this concept is is if if nothing else, it is it is looking at a problem that we all know exists. We know this is a problem. We know that the search engines on the internet are not very useful these days. We know that all, the, but we don't know where else to go, right? Like that's we don't know how else to get around the internet other than these broken search engines that are biased towards the highest paid advertiser and then biased towards stupid search engine optimization, um, magical combinations that no one really understands, um, but that yet manages to uh, to optimize and prioritize stuff that is just incomprehensible. Uh, we've got artificial intelligence engines that are that, that people are using just to answer the question or you know just to get around the problem of there's too much information out there. none of it makes sense to me. none of it works. Please find the one that's correct or that looks correct and then tell me it's correct. you know I mean it's it's there's such a problem and yet we don't I don't I don't see the answer yet which because it's a big problem. I don't think it's like it's a it's a tough problem to solve. So Nipamuk trying to come up with a way to classify information, to categorize it and to make it make sense to the computer is is really admirable and and to be able to make it easy and comprehensible for people to utilize and to classify things and to, to contextualize things and to share stuff across devices and across desktops and across whatever. I, I think it's a it's a great initiative uh, and and I don't know. I, I, I guess we'll see how it goes. I don't know how active it is right now. Like I go to the Digital Me website and that doesn't seem to really exist anymore. It's uh, dime-project.eu just doesn't come up. And, and that was a, a component of sort of like the realization that it's not really just a desktop anymore. It's not just a social semantic desktop. It's a social semantic digital life. So I don't know where all of this stuff is. I can't get a good feel for it from the website. It's fascinating to look at and to dream about and maybe to, to hope uh, uh, for some some progress on but right now it, it it does seem to be exactly what's in the package a collection of ontologies next up shared mime info this information has the combination of gnome and kde databases that describe what kind of data your data is we've talked about this before mime data or or mime the mime system multi-purpose internet mail extension mime so files have a mime type this was i guess developed for email but it's it's used you know on the desktop today and it helps your computer determine what kind of file something might be based on various things. It's different systems do it differently and also different, I think, uh, file types kind of demand different uh, analyses. But there's either a cookie at the start of the file that tells anything reading those first couple of bytes what kind of file it is or there's a file extension which is often manually typed by the user and not terribly reliable for that reason but if you call something uh myfile.txt my then that file may get 
one kind of icon, whereas if you call it a .mp4, it'll get a different kind of a file, a different kind of icon on your desktop. Whether or not that controls how your desktop actually sees it or treats it depends, again, on the desktop. It's really just kind of the MIME itself, the, the MIME type system itself, is simply a database uh, telling your computer what these file extensions refer to in terms of of desktop icons and what application ought to attempt to open that file. How all of that is actually handled, of course, goes deeper than just the database itself. Shared MIME Info is a database. It is a database of file types from both GNOME and Plasma desktop. And I think with that, it's probably time for a cup of coffee. Let's go get some and we'll come back and finish up the show. back. I have coffee from a uh, sort of a big bin store, a dry goods store, where you bring your own container, fill it up. This is not the one, from my, that's not, not my usual big bin store. This is from a different one in a city called Invercargill, which uh, is, like, if you go there, you get to, basically everywhere you go, you get to say, you're in the southernmost one of those. So, for instance, I went to uh, to grab a bite to eat at a place called Burger Fuel, which has vegetarian burgers, which is why I went there. And um, I think it's a chain, at least within New Zealand. I'm not sure if it's anywhere else, but it's maybe in Australia too. I don't know. Or maybe the whole world. I don't know. I just It was a place that was open at the time I needed food. I went there, and so now I can declare truthfully to the whole world, unless there's one in Antarctica that I don't know about, that I've been to the southernmost Burger Fuel. I went to a cafe, uh, which I don't remember the name of, and I can now say that I've been to the southernmost one of those cafes. If I could remember the name, that would be a little bit more significant, and so on. So this coffee is from the southernmost um, dry goods store, probably, unless there's one in Antarctica. So it is called, I think it was just labeled Brazil. That's what the coffee is called, I guess, just Brazil. And I'm assuming it's from Brazil. I don't know. It was just in a a glass jar, and I literally took the entire glass jar, dumped it into my container, because I get, I I try to get like a kilo of coffee, you know, at a time. And I didn't think, I don't think they really, I guess, expected that, because yeah, it was, it was, it didn't even fill up my container. It wasn't even a full kilo. So, um, yeah, I got it. I'm drinking it, and it's okay. It's, it's, I kind of like Crave. It's just kind of like, um, yeah, it's fine. It's it's coffee. Uh, I'm, it's it is not anything super impressive. Let me see if let me see if I can describe the flavor with all the wonderful words that English language provides for describing flavors. Tastes like coffee. Okay. So, next one in the list here is SIP, appropriately enough. Uh, SIP is a tool for generating Python bindings, and it is, th- this library is distributed by Riverbank Computing, which is the, um, the, the company, the group, whatever, that puts out, uh, PyQt, which are the Python bindings for Qt. I've used this quite a lot. It was, um, it was kind of that avenue when I was first, I mean, w- one is always learning programming, I think, but when I was first learning to navigate programming, it was with Python. And I really, you know, for me, for for my needs at that point, it was really like about making graphical applications. Like that's what I really needed. I as much as I enjoyed making my, my little bash scripts and stuff, I I, I felt like my the, the people that I could potentially serve by programming stuff really needed graphical applications. And PyQt is just amazing for this very purpose. In fact, I would say it's so amazing I would hesitate to look elsewhere. Well, that's not true. I would also, I would look at Java first. But if that, for whatever reason, doesn't appeal to you, or if Java is too advanced for where you are, then Python, you know, is definitely an easy way in. PyQt, it does take it to a whole new level. That's the, that's the, that's the problem, right? So Python is great as an introductory language. It's also great as an advanced language. 
but those are almost two different languages. I mean, it's literally the same language. But at, at a certain level, when you start doing certain things, then you, you necessarily have to completely change what you think you knew and learn a whole bunch of new stuff. And I think that that's a, that's a difficult thing to communicate in Python. And it's difficult for the user, for you, if you're learning Python, it's difficult for you to know when you're ready sort of to go to the next level. And I, I don't feel like, I don't feel like programmers necessarily talk about that difference all that often. And, and it's, it's, I think it's an important one to talk about because you can quote unquote learn Python, but be nowhere near writing, uh, I don't know, a graphical application or a large language model parser or whatever, you know, like it, it's, there, there are just things that, that yes, you've, you've got all the basics and you've got maybe even the, all the intermediaries, but, or in, intermediates rather, um, but, but you're not advanced yet, but, but how do you know? So PyCute is great. It's a great way to get graphical applications going with Python, but you do have to understand that once you cross over into that level of interaction with libraries, then you're you're dealing with a different style of programming. I mean, you really, really are. A, a graphical application itself, just it, it's just written to be a different, it's written differently. The application doesn't, it needs to appear on the screen and then idle and wait for user interaction, whereas most Python scripts that people just write for, 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 for processing data, the idea is not to idle, get it done quickly, and then, and then return the user to the prompt. And those are two drastically different modes of kind of conceptualizing. And, and it's difficult to understand that without being, having that explained to you and sort of having that identified early on. It's almost to the point that I, I I almost think that that GUI application programming should be maybe earlier in the typical Python lesson. I could be wrong on that. It's it's a tough. It is a tough topic to tackle. Um. So that's SIP, and and that's included in Slackware. So if you want to start programming with like PyCute stuff today, you can do that. Like that is on your computer right now uh, on Slackware. Anyway, I don't know what computer you're on, but I mean, on if you're on Slackware. It's there. For instance, Emacs, hello.py, or, or whatever your text editor is. It doesn't have to be Emacs. Import sys, import sys. From pycute5.cutewidgets, that's QT widgets uh, with capital Q, capital W. Import Q application, Q widget, Q label. So those are the those are little components of cute widgets. There's the application widget. There's the uh, there's the label widget, and so on. The application is less a widget than than to the, the whole package. But anyway, uh, from pycute 5cute GUI, import cute uh, Q, Q icon. That'll give us an icon. Oops. That'll give us an icon. Uh, from PyCute 5 Cute Core, import PyCute Slot. Slots and signals is what Cute uses to relay information from you to the application and from the application to you and from the application to the application. All right, so we're gonna define a, a thing and we'll call it window. Def space window, parentheses, parentheses, colon, and then indent app equals q application parentheses sys.argv close parentheses. This is the way that you get um, system arguments into your application, but you're also creating an application. You're saying uh, create an, a variable from me right now called app and we're going to as a template as it were we're going to use everything from q application so just take whatever q applicate q yeah q application and whatever system arguments the user has provided and dump them into app then next line still indented widget equals q widget parentheses parentheses next line text label equals q label parentheses widget close parentheses. So we're saying that we want a widget in our application and the widget that we want, or, or rather what we want to do with that widget is to put, is to, to create a queue label, which is one of the components from pycute5.cutewidget. Text label dot set text. So now we're, we're using that queue label entity called text label, which we created. It's a variable. What's the variable contain? Well, it contains the template of queue label, which we're applying to widget. Uh, text label dot set text. So now we're using a function called set text from the, the class queue label. Parentheses quote, 
hello world, close quote, close parentheses. Text label dot move. So move is another function from Q label. We get to position this. Uh, let's put it at 66 comma 66. I don't know where that'll be within this window, but that's where it's going. Widget dot set geometry. Uh, let's do, I don't know, 66 comma 66 comma 200 comma 200. That's a lot of squares, but I, it sounds right to me. Uh, close parentheses. Widget dot, so again, widget being the Q widget. Widget dot set window title. My pi cute example. Close quote, close parentheses. And then because this is programming, you have to do a widget dot show parentheses parentheses. I mean, you know, I say it's because it's programming like you'd think that that would just be assumed right like in the future in a future world where computers understand what you mean instead of exactly what you say this would be different sys.exit so this is um if something happens then we're going to exit so that's uh, sys.exit parentheses app.exec underscore parentheses parentheses close parentheses so this is this is Tapping. This is a great example, actually, of how these frameworks make make something that seems simple exactly as simple as it seems. All this is saying is that, hey, if you receive an exit signal, then exit. But in other applications, you literally have to write a function where you're like listening for all the different ways a user might exit, whether it's going to a menu that you've created and selecting exit or just clicking on that little X button at the top right of their window or the top left of their window, wherever they have their close window button located, and and clicking that. And of course, you didn't create that. That's a component of the operating system. And I mean, who knows what the operating system is sending when when you click an X at the top of the window. Like, what kind of signal is that? I don't know. I wouldn't know how to look for that on Linux, much less Mac, much less Windows. You don't have to. Qt knows it already. So that's that's a beautiful, like the fact that that's a one-liner, which, I mean, admittedly, it makes no sense. Set assist.exit app ex- exec underscore. That's stupid. I hate it. It's dumb. But the fact that it is that simple, I mean, you'll never under, you'll never remember that. You'll never know that. You you just have to find out what the magic incantation is. I, I cannot stand code like that. That's my least favorite kind of code. Sys.exit parentheses app.exec underscore parentheses parentheses parentheses. Oh, it's terrible. But there it is. It is simple. If space, uh, and this is unindented now, so if space underscore underscore name underscore underscore equals equals a single quote underscore underscore main underscore underscore close uh, close single parentheses colon that's my other least favorite line i think this that that is my least favorite incantation in all of python i think if underscore underscore name underscore underscore space equals equals space quote underscore underscore main underscore underscore quote colon i hate that that's the stupidest line i wish they would change it i know that it has meaning but it is so obscure like to understand what that's actually saying i just i wish they would just rewrite that in something that feels more to me more pythonic i'm sure to to the people who are actually building python this is very pythonic like this probably makes exact sense but for me from from understanding it on a user level or trying to explain it to someone that just doesn't mean anything that's not a statement that has meaning but i I get it it's it's just it's different audiences different requirements um and then indent window parentheses parentheses now what is window well that's the function that we created def window that that's that so all we're saying is as long as this has been um executed as a as a as an application and not being imported as a library then then just default to launching that function okay so i save that and now i'm going to python 3 space dot slash hello dot pi and sure enough i get a window that's a little bit boxy with the word hello world right dead center in the window what, what happens if i make it big no it doesn't it, it's not very flexible i mean the, the window you can make it big but hello world just kind of stays exactly where it is um and there's my pi cute example and it's, it's a little window that looks exactly 
exactly like, and there's an icon in the window. I mean, it, it's it's everything. It's a GUI application. And what was that? Something like WC-L, hello, Python, 19 lines of code. You get a GUI application. I mean, a simple GUI application, but I mean, that's, that's really easy to generate. So really cool stuff. Check it out. PyCute and SIP is the technology that, that helps translate all those cute um, functions and classes over to Python. And it does have to be installed for PyCute to, to work. I mean, that's another thing about PyCute. Not only is it a, a whole new level of Python programming if you're beginning at Python, but it's also a whole new level of packaging stuff up. I mean, you have to make sure that your users running your, you know, really simple, wonderful PyQt application has SIP installed and PyQt installed and PyQt needs Qt installed. So you need all those things. It's a lot. It's a lot. And your application. So it, it's it's a big puzzle to put together. Okay, next up is Slang or Slang. That is the um, Slang interpreter, this being version 2 specifically. Slang is the programming language uh, developed by and probably for um, Jed. Jed, the the editor, Jed. Uh, This is John E. Davis, J-E-D, Jed. If you go to jedsoft.org slash slang or slang, he explains it this way. Slang is a multi-platform programmer's library designed to allow a developer to create robust multi-platform software. It provides facilities required by interactive applications such as display screen management, keyboard input, key maps, and so on. The most exciting feature of the library, though, is the slang interpreter that may be easily embedded into a program to make it extensible. While the emphasis has always been on embedded nature of the interpreter, it's also, uh, it can be used as a, as a standalone through SLSH, which indeed is, um, included with, with this package. So if you type in SLSH at, you know, in a terminal, then, then you're in an, you're, you're in an interpreter. You're like, uh, what are they called? The REPL sort of, I mean, I don't know if that's literally what it is, but like, you know, Python idle, that sort of thing. That's what you've got. You've got an interactive sort of session with this, this S lang language. Now, what can you do in this interactive session? That's a whole other story, right? I mean, if you go to jedsoft.org slash slang slash doc slash HTML, then you'll get the, the, the documentation for the language. So I guess if you want to learn S slang, then that's, that's the, that's where you would go to do that. Um, there are certain things that you can kind of, um, kind of figure out on your own. In, in a way, um, let me clear my screen. So if you do an exclamation mark and then a sh- a bash, uh, like a shell command, um, you bypass SLSH, which is kind of uh, quite nice. So, you know, if you want an LS of your current directory, you just do exclamation point LS and you get a, you, you get a list of your current directory. So everything, it just passes right through to your shell. So that's kind of cool, but that's not, that's more of, that's more the shell than the language, I guess. So let's do an X equals three semicolon. There, now we've got x minus three. Um, how do we get this thing to print x? Well, as you might guess, it's print, parentheses, x, close parentheses, semicolon. All the lines have to end with a semicolon. So that's just kind of get used to that. Uh, you can define a new function by doing define, d-e-f-i-n-e. It doesn't abbreviate it. It's so nice. It's not def. It's just define, um, space, and then the name, and then parentheses, parentheses, and then whatever. Uh, so that's kind of, oh, and not, not whatever, the curly brace, and then the func, you know, whatever you put into that function, close curly brace. So it is quite nice. It uses curly braces to scope things out, which is wonderful. And, and it's got, you know, built in, some built in functions, uh, string concatenation, uh, string copy, various mathematical things. So arrays, lots of arrays, lots of things you can do with arrays and lists and other complex structures uh, of that sort of nature. Um, I would say, like, if you know Lua or C or Java and probably Python, um, and even Bash in some cases. I mean, this doesn't. This doesn't. This is not. This is not going to confuse you. This is. This is vaguely obvious stuff. Like this. This feels like a normal programming language, whatever that would mean. So yeah, check it out. It's. It's kind of interesting. I mean, I don't know. You know, I've. I have not played around with it because uh, I don't know what I would use it for. 
really. That's that's the thing. You know, it, it feels quite specific in its target, and I just I don't know what I would personally ever ever use it for. Although if I switched to Jed, maybe I would use it for something. Who knows? But um, it, it is it's it's interesting. It's fun. It's cool that it has that little interactive interpreter. So I don't know. It is kind of worth looking at. I think. Um, but I mean, so is Lua. You know, I, I I keep looking at it and I just think, yeah, I'll just use Lua. Like fair or unfair, I don't know. But, like, for my purposes, I guess it just wouldn't make sense, I don't think, to use slang. I could be wrong. I could be missing out. Next up is Sound Theme Free Desktop. It's a bunch of sounds to make your desktop, uh, you know, have sounds to it. I think I've talked about this before. I don't know where that tradition comes from. It is a funny thing to me. I I never expected my desktops, I don't think, to make sounds. But it, it just seems like it is kind of a Linux thing. And I'm just wondering if that's a thing that they inherited from Windows. Is that a thing on Windows? I don't know. I really don't know. But um, generally speaking, I, I have most sounds turned off on, on my desktop. I mean, I'll get notification sounds from like chat applications and things like that. That I appreciate. But like just clicking the menu button or something, I, I, don't, I don't need that to have a sound personally. I, I, don't, I don't think it's bad that that's an option. I just don't need it myself. And speaking of making sounds, the next one in the list is Speech Dispatcher. This is a, um, a, a layer, f- this is a, a system by which your computer should be able to, spe- to, to, to talk to you. It should be able to read uh, the, the contents of your screen back to you. It needs to be running in order for that to work, but as far as I can tell, it is running by default on Slackware. Uh, You can find this out for sure by going to a terminal and typing in speech-dispatcher, and uh, it confirms for me speech-dispatcher already running. So this is running the speech-d, or speech-daemon. Speech-d is running, and that means that I could just type in spd-say, spd speech, speech dispatcher, I guess, speech-say, s-a-y, and then something like, uh, can we do two words? Quote, hello, space world, close quote. Hello world. Yeah, we can do that. And you get that horrible grating computer sound that, you know, is charmingly retro and yet also embarrassingly retro. It, it doesn't sound, doesn't sound like a modern computer. It doesn't sound natural by any means. It is speech synthesis in sort of like the most rudimentary way. Not saying that it's actually rudimentary. I mean, I don't know how to program something that literally generates speech from phonemes. I mean, that's amazing. But um, but it it does it it's you know I mean look if you're if you're talking to someone who's coming from a Mac that that has a, a voice that sounds like it may as well be a real life human uh, living in your computer talking to you, and then you you play them. World. That um, you're, it's just a different experience. There's no, there's no way around that. That is, that is a very different experience than than the alternative. And I think that's a hard sell. Um, I do think that this is important to have, though. I just, I, I just wish there were maybe, um, I, mi- I wish it was a little bit easier and maybe more out of the box to have that um, with voices that that don't sound completely, um, you know, like out of the 1970s or 80s or 90s, like something really, really natural sounding. I, I don't think that's, I think that's a reasonable request for someone who, who can't see. I mean, th- the least we could do is, is provide something that sounds natural and is easy to understand. I don't know. It's It's just... It's it's a little bit painful, and it might be fine for like you know it, this this might be the terminal equivalent uh, of a pretty GUI. You know what I mean? Like a lot of us Linux users, after a while, you just start to slowly lose sight of the GUI. You're just like, I don't actually care. As it turns out, I thought I did, but I don't because I'm I'm I I find myself living in a terminal or a terminal in Emacs or whatever and you just start to really really lose sight of how of of sort of what a GUI looks like you just don't care anymore and I think you know possibly for for a blind user that might be the same thing like after a while it's just like look what I want my computer to do is to speak fast and uh just it just needs to give me a sense for what what's there and that might be fine for some users but there are other users who never lose sight of the GUI right like it has to look good they're not going to live in a terminal they want the GUI they want the GUI to look good they want it to feel modern etc and i think there's just just as that 
exists. There are people who don't want their computer to sound like it was generated back in the 80s, that it's generating like natural speech. And I think that's a perfectly acceptable requirement to have. And I, I just wish it was easier to get that here on Linux. Now, Orca, um, the screen reading application Orca supports speech D. So that's in part what this would be used for. I don't really know what it's being used for on Slackware other than speech D-EL, which I don't even know if that is on Slackware, but you could install it in Emacs. Uh, and then you can have like uh, your whole, everything read to you from Emacs and your Emacs shell. Uh, it would be quite a, a, a usable sort of blind interface as long as you're just interested in text. There's almost, yeah, there's rather, there's also Emacs speak, but that's not the same thing. That's a different system. Um, speech D being already installed on Slackware may be the easier thing to set up for a Slackware user, to be honest. So that's Speech Dispatcher. Let's talk quickly about Speaks, S-P-E-E-X. This is a codec. I used to release this show in Speaks, uh, in part in Speaks. It was um, Aug and Speaks, I think. And then Opus came out, and suddenly I didn't see the reason to ever, ever use Speaks again and I don't I do not hesitate to to reinforce that 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 is speaks is was it was very low low like low bit rate uh, the file sizes were very very small but it it did not sound crisp it did not sound clear whereas opus can get really, really small files and sound amazing. So it just doesn't make sense, I don't think, to go to Speaks for me. Now, it might still make sense for certain applications uh, like Mumble or something like that. But for me, yeah, I'm, I'm just using Opus. It's perfectly acceptable and, and sounds great. So um, I, I consider this show really the official release. I, I, I think of as the Opus release. Like that's that's the one that's a small file, but it still sounds fine. Speaks never did music very well. Like really, really did not do music well. Um, and then it, it just barely did the voice well. And I mean, I could have probably done a better version of, of a Speaks release, but then you're losing the file size advantage. Whereas Opus, I feel like you get the small files and it sounds good. All right, next up is Speaks DSP. That's a um, DSP library, which I uh, now that I'm about to say it out loud, I've completely forgotten what DSP stands for. My goodness. Digital um, digital signal pro processing. There we go. Digital signal pro processing. It's a patent-free, open-source-free software DSP library, which essentially means that if you're a programmer and you're looking to encode something uh, as speaks from your application, you're probably going to be using this speaks DSP. All right. Next up is SPIRV LLVM translator. That is we've talked about LLVM. Um, SPIRV or SPI R-V is a shading library developed by, or a shading language, I guess, or specification maybe, uh, developed by the Kronos group. So if you're doing 3D shaders, that kind of thing, you might be able to use SPIR-V. And if you're doing that, then you might want to tie that into your compiler. Uh, and if it's LLVM, then this would be the thing that could translate those two things for you. It's bidirectional, so it'll go from LLVM to SPIRV and the other way around. So that's what you'll be using. Uh, next up is startup notification. It adds support for applications to use busy cursors while starting up. Not much more to say about that. It, it's, it does exactly what it says on the tin. Next up is SVGA lib. And this is a funny one. So it's, it's not actually SVG. It's it's S V G A lib. The S I think stands for what was it? Super secret? Super secret? I don't know. Uh, whatever S V G S V G A, whatever that stands for, is what the S stands for. Um, what what does it stand for? Uh, uh, super super Linux super V G A graphics library. I don't know my VGA, SVGA. I, I never paid attention to that sort of thing back when I was using computers when, like, that was a thing. I mean, it still is a thing, but, you know, but you, you used to really have to know your, like, what kind of monitor is this? Is it a VGA monitor or a SVGA monitor? Or, you know, like, that mattered, and the refresh rates mattered, and, and 
and all of those other things. Now I don't know. So anyway, Super VGA, um, this is a way to write sort of directly to the screen without having to resort to fancy technologies like, you know, X11 or, or Wayland. You can just write pixels to a frame buffer like they did with s with, with i guess svga uh, I've, I've never yeah i never programmed for vga i don't know anything about it but like i guess that would be how they would have done it so uh, in your c code you would use uh you would include vga.h that's one of the header files included with this and then you could do things like you could tell your little application like what kind of vga monitor you're pretending you have uh you, vga underscore set mode and you can tell it the resolution and the pixel depth or the color depth whatever uh and then you can set the color that you want to draw and then you can draw a pixel at a certain location on that grid that you have just defined so it's vga underscore set mode and then something like you know like 320 by 200 by 256 or something and then vga underscore set color that uh there's a whole list zero is black one is blue two is green three is cyan four is red five is magenta six is brown seven is gray and so on up to 15 uh and then svga or rather uh, vga underscore uh, now that you set the color underscore draw pixel parentheses wherever you want that to go so you've got a grid of 320 by 200 so you could do like you know 15 comma 20 or something and that would draw a pixel on the screen for exactly you know like one millisecond or whatever like it would just flash on and then disappear um but then you could do like a sleep or something and have it stay there for a little while um and then you could exit and that would be more or less what you would do um and that would kind of work. Like that would draw, you've just drawn a pixel on screen and see. When compiling it, of course, you need to link to the library itself. So that's dash L VGA. It's not SVGA. It's just dash L VGA. Took me ages to figure that out when I was playing around with this over the past week because I just wanted to make it SVGA every single time. And um, it turns out if I just scrolled down a little bit more on the very very good documentation it would have told me exactly what to type uh, now the the problem is though that after i finally got everything more or less working uh it took over it, it like killed my i think it killed my x session entirely and just dumped me into a console and i couldn't i was completely without keyboard controls for no good reason waited the obligatory five seconds for it to like return me to some some kind of prompt never did didn't paint the red pixel that i had put in so i don't know exactly what went wrong there um but yeah it did not it did not work for me so be careful when you're doing this i guess is is the lesson there like this uh this this is really low level stuff and you're 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 controlling graphics and if you do something wrong you can you can you can temporarily mess up your session so just be mindful of that be be careful but otherwise i mean if you know what you're doing um and you just want to paint some some pixels onto your screen svga lib is not a bad option and even if you're just playing around with c and you just want to make some some interesting you know art or something i mean this could be fun to, to mess around with as well um this i mean this really is like this is how people programmed for a long time like svga painting pixels on screen like this was this was like legitimately like for a good a good long time in computing history this was this was color this was painting this was everything you did on a computer that's what this was so that's kind of cool to to look at from a historical perspective but um you know the zero through 15 color (laughs) color scheme definitely definitely kind of you know retro um and kind of cool to see but yeah it's it's something to maybe look at with care you you need to know what you're doing it's c don't just type stuff in and run things as root you know that 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 can break things or not seriously but it, it could screw up your session anyway okay last one in the s section is system config printer this is a cups printer administration tool it is the um a tool written in python using pygtk no less and if you launch it system config printer you get um a little print window you may have seen this before i always thought this was part of xfce 
to be perfectly honest. I knew that it wasn't uh, the KDE printer configuration, but I, be, because I probably, because it uses PyGTK, I recognized it sort of as, well, a GTK application, I could tell. And, and I thought, well, that must be from XFCE because that's the only, that's the only source of GTK really that I have on the system, uh, for, for system level stuff anyway. Um, and, and this is a fine little configurator. I, I, it's not the one I use. I use the one in KDE, um, or sometimes I'll go to localhost colon, uh, 631, but generally I just, these days I, I find that I can do the, the very few things that I need to do with a printer. I, I can just do it in the KDE thing. Um, printing, I mean, you know, I want to say printing is just so sublimely simple now on, on Linux, and it kind of is. Sorry, I should revise that statement. I want to say printing is so sublimely simple now on computers. Like, it doesn't have to be Linux. It should, computers, modern computers and printers should be so much better than what they are. Like, it's just, it's such a disappointing technology, especially when you think about the fact that the GNU project literally got started after not being able to print. Like, that was the, the that was the impetus for coming up with the idea of freely available available software uh, that you share source code with one another was because a printer wouldn't interface with Richard Stallman's computer. Like, that's how long this printer issue has been. And, I mean, these days, I will admit, like, I, I have this stupid laser printer that seems to be dying. I replaced its toner, and for, like, a good two days, it seemed to be fine. But I guess, I don't know, it, I guess not. But I, I've got one in my office, and I, I really need to get rid of it, to be honest, and get a new one. It's on my list to do. Um, But, I mean, you, I just plug it in, and it's just it just pops up into my, you know, I don't, I don't even remember adding it to my computer. I'm sure I did. But it's just so easy. It gets auto-detected detected by cups you add it and you you can print to it and and you don't even you don't need like the company's driver you just can use the free drivers if you want it's just so nice and of course there's hp lip or whatever on slackware as well so you have a bunch of hp stuff anyway it, it is really really nice now there is still a printer out there and you you will find it or i will find it when we least expect and it will completely elude configuration and it will be annoying and it will just make you hate computing and justifiably so like that should never happen the printing is not complex enough of a process to to cause problems for modern computers like that should never happen drivers should not there shouldn't be special drivers for printers like these are all standardized of things that we could standardize so it's just it, it is it is a it's largely a commentary on modern humanity on how bad printing is still in 2024. But CUPS is a great application, and this little system config printer is exactly what you need it to be when you need it to be. Like, if you want to add a printer, you launch this thing and you click the, the add button, and then it steps you through, like, how to find the 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 printer that you want. If it's networked, you've got a bunch of different options. If you know the generic URI, you've got options there, and so on. Typically, like I say, like most of the time, honestly, printers are just auto-discovered by my computer. So it just doesn't even, like if it's on my network or or connect to it, connected to it through a USB, then it'll find it and I can add it that way. It's so, so simple. So nice. Um, I, my, my partner actually had a, she had, a, they'd gotten a new printer at her workplace and she's running um, a GNOME desktop and on her, on her laptop. And she, she, she was going to ask me on the weekend to come in and help her, you know, set that up. And I was up for it. And instead, uh, you know, the Friday before the day that I was supposed to do that, she messaged me and said, oh, the printer's just, it just, it's just, it, it just was just there. It was just there in my, when I went to print, it was just there. And that's how easy it is. Like, that's how easy it is. And that's exactly what one wants. Now, I actually did have to go in and help configure it because it does need special drivers, as it turns out. Like, it, you know, the auto-discovery using a generic free driver got 90% of the way there. But there's like this one little 10% thing for, I don't know, something like borderless printing or something that needs the special uh, Fuji, Fuji, Fujitsu uh, driver, I think, or was it Rico? or Xerox, I don't know. You know, so some stupid thing that, that actually, oh, by the way, we tricked you. You do need this special driver. It's very annoying. And I guess that's that's the thing, right? It's like, we, we, 
these things don't actually need special (laughs) drivers. Like, all of this could be an official specification for printers, and we could just make it work. We could just work, but that's not what we're doing for some reason. It's very annoying, but this, again, (laughs) system config printer, great little application. I don't use it. I just use the printer settings in KDE, but certainly if I was running XFCE, which I have to do soon so that I can be ready for the XFCE uh, software series that's coming up uh, eventually in this in this overview of all the packages installed with Slackware, um, then I would use this f- for sure. Yeah, this is great. This is a great little configuration application. And Cups, I mean, it makes it just so easy. Like whether you go through localhost colon 631 or whether you go through system config printer, it's just a really easy way to do the basics for your printer and make them appear on your computer. It's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Okay, that's it. And and it's cool. How cool is it that it's written in Python and PyGTK, which which we mentioned like two episodes ago, PyGTK. Um, and, and of course, we were talking about PyQt in this one, which is not PyGTK, but kind of the same thing over in the Qt world, obviously. It's just those Python bindings for for something that was written for C or, yeah, C in, in GTK case, C++ in Qt's case. And it just makes it so simple for people to write these little interfaces, relatively simple, to write these simple little interfaces for for stuff that, 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 that you know, that everyone's going to need. It's so great. Um, I mean, that's the kind of empowering, that's user empowerment, you know, like, like people can just write these little interfaces. I think it, it still needs to be easier, I think. It's cool that a lot of people could do Python, PyGTK, PyQt, whatever. But I, I just, I wish it was just still yet a little easier. And, and I know useful things could come of that. Um, or a bunch of useless things. Either way, it would be stuff that people could do on their computers and share um, through maybe a semantic social desktop. Who knows? Uh, so that's all the S's. So we're just down to the last, really, two screenfuls. So, yeah. It's not not long, not not much longer in the L section at this point. We are getting very very close to the N section, the networking section. Don't miss out. Keep coming back to this show every week so you can get past the L's and into the N's. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open Now we can organize.